Today, COP28, the UN's annual climate change summit, kicks off in Dubai. The aim of the summit is to limit global warming, and the key to doing that, amongst other things, is to limit the burning of fossil fuels. We must find common ground, ensure consensus, and resolve differences, because the risks will just keep growing if we keep kicking the can down the road. This year, though, the summit is being led by Sultan al-Jaber, the UAE Special Envoy on Climate Change. But he's also the CEO of the country's oil and gas company, Adnoc. To have someone whose core business it is to sell billions of barrels of oil for decades to come, to have that man at the head of a climate conference is so absurd it would be laughable were it not so serious. That's Patrick Gailey, a journalist and senior fossil fuels investigator with Global Witness. Now, to have a fossil fuel CEO as president gives that lobby, gives that industry unprecedented control over the future of our climate. And that should terrify everyone. So why then are fossil fuel lobbyists allowed a seat at the table at the world's most important climate talks? And how can Al Jaber reconcile this enormous conflict of interest? He has gone on record as saying that it is the consumer who is responsible for these emissions somehow, not the producer, not Adnoc, which is the, the logic of the drug dealer, isn't it? You know, that's, it's not our products that are climate wrecking carbon bombs. It's people using our products. This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Chapalak. Today, why is an oil company CEO running this year's climate talks? Patrick, when Sultan al-Jaber, the CEO of an oil company, was announced as president of COP28 back in January, what was the reaction to his appointment? Um, That really depends on who you are and where you're coming from. For oil executives and industry representatives, the response was hand-rubbing. They have been very vocal when speaking to their peers at conferences and in investor calls. And when Sultan Aljeba was appointed, there was virtually unrestrained glee at having an oil boss at the head of these talks. For environmental groups, justice groups, climate scientists, US senators, MEPs, and nearly everyone else who doesn't profit directly from the production and sale of fossil fuels, and who takes the side of people over polluters, the response was basically horror. Yes, we've had COPs before hosted by fossil fuel producing nations. The key departure point this time around is placing the man who is head of one of the largest oil producers on earth as president of COP. COPs are complicated, multilateral, they're exhausting. They require clear leadership and clear independent leadership from the president. Sultan al-Jaber is many things, and we might get onto that, but he retains his title as CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. He sells a million barrels of oil a day to China. He sells a million barrels of oil a day to Japan, half a million a day to India. It is inconceivable, therefore, that he will approach these talks with anything close to the independence and impartiality that is needed to get an equitable and effective outcome to this COP. 
Al-Jabir has many strings to his bow. He's not just the CEO of Adnoc, he's also the UAE's special envoy on climate change. And he's chairman of Mazdar, a renewable energy company in UAE. What else can you tell me about this man? Who is Al-Jabir and how did he come to be chief of COP28? Yeah, that's that's quite a question, Sarka, because <laughs> you'd be forgiven for going online and looking at the available literature on Sultan al-Jaber and believing that he is a autodidact, a self-made man, uh, an outsider who's managed to attain and accumulate a large amount of influence and power from being outside the royal family, um, a go-getter, a diplomat, an innovator, a disruptor, a tech bro, if you like. To some extent, he's all of these things. But I think what Sultan Al-Jaber is mainly is a very good image manager. Mm. So, yes, it's true that he is chairman of Mazdar. Now, Mazdar has been going for decades. That is also true. If you read the PR and publicly available information on Mazda, something that gets repeated all the time by UAE officials and their partners, that Mazda is a global player, one of the largest um, renewable energy providers on earth. The problem is that that's not necessarily true. Um, Mazda actually, according to a recent Bloomberg analysis, is about the 62nd largest renewables provider on earth, very far from being among the top. He is also a diplomat which is very, very key in, in climate negotiations, of course. But he's he's sort of a, a point man that the UAE tends to wheel out at key inflection points on diplomacy. So he was a key point person between the UAE and the Saudi-led coalition, um, which is, as you know, has been conducting a war on Yemen for nearly a decade now. Of course. Um, he was a key contact point between the regime of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt after the coup. 10 years ago. Um, So he appears to be a kind of Swiss army knife for the UAE, diplomatically speaking. Um, He's Western educated. um, He's polite. He comes across as intelligent, engaging, willing to listen. So um, he is, in effect, a construct, uh, a mixture of good marketing and experienced diplomacy. You would think then that Adnoc, the UAE's state oil company, would be looking to scale down its production of fossil fuels to start working with the UAE's climate change goals. But this isn't the case. In fact, they're actually looking at expansion. What can you tell me about this? Yes, that's right, Sirka. So what we see generally uh, across the established oil producers, they split into two camps, NOCs and IOCs, that's nationally owned and internationally owned oil companies. ADNOC is a nationally owned one. That means it's 100% owned by the government. And they tend to have different plans to the oil companies that you and I and everybody listening will will know off, off the bat, such as the Shells, the BPs, the Exxons of this world. Those are publicly listed and beholden to shareholders. So they have to at least be seen to be acting in good faith when it comes to climate, not just to keep board members happy, but to, to keep politicians and ultimately voters happy. ADNOC does not have that reporting requirement. It is fully owned by the state. ADNOC, to me, is unique globally. And I'll tell you why. You've got the big national oil companies, the Saudi Aramcos, the Kuwait Petroleums of this world, who are producing an awful lot of oil and plan to continue 
roughly the same levels of production for the next decade or two. You have the super majors, the Exxon's totals of this world, who are producing a lot of oil and plan to reduce their oil production over the next few decades following geoeconomic trends. ADNOC is an outlier. It has very, very high production currently, and it's planning to increase production enormously over the next decade. That, I believe, makes it unique in the world. It is planning to increase its production by more than 40% between now and the end of this decade. That's the same date by which the UN says emissions must fall over 40%. So you've got, on one hand, Sultan al Jaber himself acknowledging that the UN says that emissions must fall by 40 plus percent by 2030 to give us a 50% chance of keeping 1.5 C of warming, the Paris Agreement temperature goal, within reach. And on the other hand, you've got Sultan al Jaber's oil company planning to increase its oil production and gas production by over 40%. It's going in precisely the wrong direction for what is needed to retain a survivable future. Patrick, we know that fossil fuel lobbyists have been attending COP summits for years and the number continues to grow. But how much of an impact do they really have on the talks? Yes, Sirka. So that's I think that's an important thing to address. When we talk about the the COP, the, the Conference of the Parties, climate summits, people are kind of generally aware of what kind of roughly what they are, but the actual intricacies of them are that there's tens of thousands of people attending every year. And a lot of them are representatives of governments. So they come as they come in a diplomatic capacity to negotiate on behalf of their governments back home. A lot of them are advisors to these governments because, you know, unfortunately, international diplomacy is expensive. And, you know, you have cops being held in, you know, Lima or or or, you know, the global north quite often. This one's in Dubai. So people from developing economies they have to really work out whether they can afford to go, whether it's worthwhile for them. These are unfortunately decisions that are driven by, you know, real politic and hard economics. What you also have is a large constituency of environmentalists, of scientists, of people advocating for the application of what we know is needed to help solve the problem that is climate change, or at least to avoid its worst impacts. Then you have industry representatives. And these aren't necessarily all fossil fuel lobbyists, but they speak for industry. They might represent cement companies or the steel industry or aviation or forestry or agriculture. These are the kind of technocrats that are supposed to be able to implement the practical solutions that are needed to achieve the political goals of this climate conference, which is, remember, to limit global warming to 1.5 C. Now, When you have fossil fuel lobbyists turning up, we know that 90% of the carbon emissions globally that are driving climate change are derived from fossil fuels. Now, a lot of people would say uh, you can't come up with a solution that doesn't include the people who are running the global energy network, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Because if you don't consult them in the process, we have no idea of knowing whether it's practicable. What we do know is that when these fossil fuel companies do turn up, they act in bad faith. They do not have the same goals as the governments that turn up. Shell, for example, was caught boasting about how it influenced the Paris Agreement, how it got specific language it was seeking into the final decision text. 
the Edison Electric Company did the same about how it managed to influence certain outcomes. So whenever we hear back, whenever they self-report these fossil fuel companies, it's not pulling in the same direction as everyone trying to mitigate emissions and reduce climate change, if that makes sense. You're watching BBC News. With just days to go before the UN's Climate Change Summit, which gets underway in Dubai on Thursday, the president of COP28 is facing calls to resign. Just this week, the BBC reported that when the UAE held climate talks with other countries and governments ahead of this summit, they plan to use it as an opportunity to strike oil and gas deals on behalf of ADNOC. Leaked documents obtained by the BBC and the Centre for Climate Reporting show that in meetings with at least 27 foreign governments arranged as part of the climate process, Dr Jabba was briefed to discuss business deals for these state firms. The COP28 team did not deny using climate meetings to discuss fossil fuel deals. It told the BBC private meetings are private and we do not comment on them. This revelation must surely come as another blow to the credibility of this summit, right? Uh, In my view, yes, it does, Serka. Look, speaking as someone who investigates fossil fuel companies, this is quite obviously what the UAE was thinking when it offered to host COP. It's obviously come up, it's gone away, it's done some calculations, it's gone hosting COP, benefits, cons. Okay, the pros, we get to announce ourselves on the global stage as a major player in oil, as a major player in climate diplomacy, and as a major player in climate tech. It will land on the global map, the UAE, thanks to COP28. The negatives are obviously scrutiny, unprecedented amount of scrutiny, both in the UAE and into ADNOC's workings. At some point, it's gone away, done a cost-benefit analysis and found out that the pros overweigh the cons. COP is giving diplomatic cover to the UAE to continue to sell billions of barrels of climate-wrecking products for decades to come. This should be the death knell in the presidency's credibility. For us, it certainly is, and we've been calling on him to resign, along with hundreds of environmental groups, The reason I don't think it will be a death knell is because the UAE has managed, at least in its own head and in the heads of its partners, to successfully separate out fossil fuels from emissions. There's a reason that there's no mention of oil, gas and coal in the Paris Agreement. It's only emissions Mm -hmm. because fossil fuel companies have made a years long concerted effort in the public's mind to separate out the fossil fuels from emissions as if that is possible. But that's how they That's how they managed to justify it in their heads. So what you're saying is ADNOC's plan is to cut back on emissions, but not on the actual production of fossil fuels. And one way they plan to do that is by a process known as carbon capture, which they say limits the amount of carbon released into the atmosphere. But how effective is that really in the long run? So ADNOC... The Abu Dhabi National Oil Company plans to use CCS, that's carbon capture and storage. So that's either sucking carbon out of the air directly or preventing it from being released in the first place. And it plans to implement CCS on its operations. So that is the infrastructure that it uses to produce oil and gas. So things like oil rigs, LNG terminals, uh, distribution lorries, electricity for buildings, these kind of things. It also says that it will have capacity to remove 10 million tonnes of carbon dioxide annually by 2030. 
The problem is that its operations, so producing oil and gas, emit far more than that, which ADNOC itself admits. Last year, for the first time ever, it disclosed that its operations in 2022 produced more than 24 million tonnes of carbon, which, you know, maths alert, is more than 10 million tonnes that it will be able to remove annually by 2030. And that's before we even get onto the carbon contained within the oil and gas it produces and sells in vast quantities. So the emissions from those, when they're used for fuel or power or whatever, add up to dozens of times more than what ADNOC claims it can remove from the atmosphere each year. In fact, we at Global Witness, we calculated that it would take more than 300 years for ADNOC to remove the full extent of its product's carbon pollution from the atmosphere based on its current CCS plans. Al-Jaba appears to justify his dual role as COP president on the one hand and as oil CEO on the other by refusing to even acknowledge the existence of the emissions that his oil and gas products produce. He has gone on record as saying that it is the consumer who's responsible for these emissions somehow, not the producer, not Adnoc, which is the... The logic of the drug dealer, isn't it? You know, that's, it's not our products that are climate-wrecking carbon bombs. It's people using our products that are the problem. And they've managed to convince themselves, um, which is quite something, some, some, some mental aerobics going on there. Coming up, can meaningful change really come from cup? Patrick, we've had another year of droughts, wildfires, floods, extreme heat like people have never seen before. 2023 is set to be the hottest year since records began. There is a lot at stake with this year's COP. What would a successful summit look like? Yes, um, it's quite a time to be alive. And a successful summit, in our view, would commit governments to a rapid and equitable phase-out of fossil fuels. This is what science says is needed. There is no new fossil fuels that are compatible with a livable planet. There is no continued use of fossil fuels at the current levels or anything like the current levels that are compatible with a livable planet. So the only successful outcome in terms of emissions would be to get countries to agree to a rapid and just phase-out of fossil fuels. I don't believe that's going to happen. But in terms of emissions, now, he, uh, Sultan Al-Jaba might be able to get wins elsewhere in terms of climate finance for climate vulnerable communities, which was promised years ago and still hasn't delivered. But the crucial issue of emissions is not going to be addressed. It's not impossible that he could pull some rabbit out the hat and say, OK, we'll agree to stop fossil fuels in like 2080 or 2090, which will mm. be completely incompatible in terms of Earth's time frame. What hope do we have here? Patrick, when we look at the progress from previous annual climate talks, can we expect any positive changes anytime soon? So what I like to do when, uh, after spending the last 20 minutes trashing COP, <laughs> uh, what I like to remind listeners is that before this process started, the UN-led process to try and rein in this kind of this object that's too big to comprehend, which is climate change, right, which is all encompassing, affects every walk of life, will impact everyone 
okay, differently, but also everyone equally. Before this process began, we were heading for four degrees C of warming above pre-industrial levels. Now, that amount of warming would be catastrophic to human civilization and quite probably to the planet, the only planet we have. We're now down to about 2.7 degrees of warming. That's if all government pledges were implemented in full and on time. Is this process perfect? Very far from it. I don't think it's the best use of anyone's time to fly everyone in the world climate policy spheres to the same place and have them argue for two weeks a year. But is it better than nothing? Absolutely. We have the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, releasing report after report saying the difference between every point one of a degree makes a huge amount of difference on how our future is going to look. So it's worth fighting for every point one of a degree. And if you can get outcomes out of COP, such as a pledge to reduce methane leaks, that might translate to a, a half a degree difference of saving. And so I think the only choice we have is to remain hopeful. If we start despairing, there's only a vanishingly small constituency of people on earth who benefit from that. And they want us to despair. They want us to go, well, we're powerless as voters, as consumers, uh, as as populations. And, and I don't believe that's the right takeaway. I believe we owe a duty to ourselves, to climate vulnerable nations, but also to the future generations to remain stubbornly and defiantly hopeful. And so that's that's something that I, I don't think we have a choice. I, I I can understand why people get overwhelmed by negative climate science and the the obvious conflicts of interest and why do we keep having oil executives, you know, telling us what we can and can't do, defining the realms of the possible. But the only choice we have is to fight back against that with sort of stubborn, um, persistent hope. Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. That's all for today. Thanks again to my guest, Patrick Gailey. This podcast is made possible with subscriptions to the Irish Times. If you would like to sign up, go to irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Pollock. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.